Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. I am your host, Mark Melton, and in this episode, I speak with Ted Mormon, who is an expert on finance, corruption, and kleptocracy. Mormon was gracious enough to come into our office late last summer to speak on these issues and the role the United States plays in them, especially with anonymous shell companies. He also explained why the U.S. should be concerned about corruption abroad. If you enjoy the podcast, please share our episodes on Twitter and Facebook, and we appreciate reviews on Apple Podcasts. Also, on our website, ProvidenceMag.com, we will publish an extended version of this conversation as a subscriber-only podcast. We also offer subscriber-only videos from our different events. Subscriptions, which include our print edition, start as low as $12 a year. To pay for a subscription or access this content, please visit ProvidenceMag.com. Again, thanks for listening. Well, today I have Ted Mormon here in the office. And first off, thank you so much, Ted, for coming in. You know, before we get started off, I'd like to describe how you got interested in the topic of kleptocracy and how, do you, uh, how did you get involved with all of this? Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm really glad to be here and thank you for Providence. Uh, for all the great work it's doing. My story is an interesting one. I was actually a finance professor for more than a decade and realized I wanted to get involved in some kind of work related to justice, in, in particular financial crime. And I thought initially that would be securities markets, but found out that I was really concerned about this phenomenon called kleptocracy. And I would say the main reason for that is because of the victims of this particular crime. Before I go into that, I should probably say what kleptocracy is. I would define kleptocracy as public officials confiscating money that is appropriated for the public, in particular for their constituents and their citizens, confiscating that money for themselves and ultimately dispersing that money and hiding it around the world and essentially using that money to gain power and to insulate themselves, essentially create an empire of one, so to speak. I think it's very important to talk about the definition of kleptocracy when we talk about it, because first off, many people haven't heard of the phrase. And so kleptocracy comes from like klepto thieves in theocracy, so the rule of thieves. Generally speaking, when I use the phrase, I see it very similar to what you just said, and mostly in authoritarian regimes. And that's because as I look at the inner politics of these different countries, it makes sense that if you are an authoritarian, you need to make certain that your essential backers or the people who support you, the oligarchs, whatever you want to call that clique of people, you want to make certain that they're happy. And the way you make them happy is by giving them something. And sometimes kleptocracy is an easy way of doing that. And there's different types of corruption. I've heard some people who say that a country is not a kleptocracy because the police are not taking bribes. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I would say it could still be a kleptocracy, just without corrupt cops. I don't think it's necessary that the cops are corrupt in order for a kleptocracy to exist. I think all that's sufficient uh, for a kleptocracy is that officials who are very high up with significant decision-making authority are using their power to extract funds that would otherwise go to the public. And I 
think one of the biggest reasons that this should be of concern to almost everybody in the world is that when this happens, when kleptocracy takes place and corruption takes place, the funds that are supposed to go to very basic things like sanitation, law enforcement, health, education, so many of the things that we in a well-developed country take for granted don't go to those people. And as a result, not only are they impoverished, but they're quite often starving and and horrible sickness. And there have been associations between kleptocracy, corruption, and the number of deaths in a country. So that's certainly one of the biggest concerns in my mind. Although, you know, that may not necessarily bring it home for a lot of the general public. It certainly seems that those countries that have kleptocrats are obviously far away from us. Maybe these are countries we've never visited before, never want to visit before, and really don't know anybody there. So then, of course, the next question becomes, well, why should we care about kleptocracy here in America? And you mentioned some of these funds are earmarked or they are designated for healthcare, several other public institutions. And so when citizens see money being siphoned from them, and also these institutions are failing the people, do you see how that then creates a sense of hopelessness amongst the people and also a greater distrust of the government that becomes even harder to overcome. With your earlier point about kleptocracies mainly happening among authoritarian governments, this certainly discourages the democratic process. And as a result, yes, the people become very cynical of government and even angry. And one of the surprising outcomes of kleptocracy and corruption is that this is one of the reasons that extremist groups arise and extremists encourage those who are angry about corruption and kleptocracy to use violent force in order to show their dissatisfaction with the way the current regime is operating. And certainly that creates problems that aren't just in-country. Certainly, these things become more globalized and even reach us here in the U.S. So that's one way we're affected, but certainly not not all. One of the things that has come up when I've talked to friends or family about kleptocracy, and I describe it as the rule of thieves, they usually then come back and say, well, that sounds a lot like the United States and the Congress or the state and local government. I have a particular response to why the U.S. is not a kleptocracy, but let me pose the question to you. Do you see the United States as a kleptocracy? No, I certainly don't see the United States as a kleptocracy. And I would think the biggest reason I don't see it as a kleptocracy is because our country has substantial resources dedicated to combating public corruption and actually great rule of law and corrupt officials at the highest level are typically removed from office, fined, and often jailed. And this is certainly something that would not be taking place in a kleptocracy. I would say something very similar to that too. I remember one conversation with someone who was telling me after I told him about kleptocracy and they're like, oh, let me tell you all about this mayor in our town who got arrested because he was siphoning funds off from some public program and going on and on and about it. And the conclusion was, well, therefore, we're in a kleptocracy. And then my next question was, well, where is the mayor? 
And the answer was he's in jail. Yeah. Whereas, depending on the which country you're talking about, and the kleptocracy, I've seen cases where the mayor is still the mayor, mm-hmm. and uh, the judge or the prosecutor or whoever was in charge of putting the mayor in jail suddenly gets a mansion or suddenly mm-hmm. gets very nice, you know, padded funds or something, and it's not quite clear where it came from or nice gifts. And to me, that kind of distinguishes between a kleptocracy and a, a non-kleptocracy. Could you speak for a moment on what the Magnitsky Act is? Because that's something that, you know, we are familiar with it, but most people are not. Like the background of it, kind of like a quick summary. Sure. So the so there are two Magnitsky Acts. One is the Global Magnitsky Act, and the other is the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act came out of a situation, I believe, in late 1990s, early 2000s, in which Russia was privatizing a number of its state-owned enterprises and particular investor by the name of Bill Browder had a fund that was taking advantage of undervaluations in some of these privatizations, or at least what was perceived as undervaluations at the time. His investment strategy was essentially to invest and then become an activist and to try to improve how the corporations were run. And as you might imagine, improving how the corporations were run meant interacting with various oligarchs, various people who were well thought of in high circles within the government. And as a result of interacting with those people, Mr. Browder wasn't looked on too kindly, nor were his associates. He was eventually kicked out of the country while some of his associates stayed in country, that country being Russia, and tried to work on his behalf because there were a number of cases, criminal cases, I believe, against him in absentia. And the particular lawyer who was working for him, Sergei Magnitsky, was actually detained and tortured and ultimately killed as a result of his association with Bill Browder and his efforts in trying to pursue justice for Mr. Browder. As a result of his death, uh, legislation was passed in the form of the Magnitsky Act, which imposes sanctions against the individuals who were responsible for Sergei Magnitsky's death. Those individuals in particular are not able to step on U.S. soil, interact with U.S. financial institutions, etc. And then more recently, the Global Magnitsky Act is an act that allows for sanctions for individuals and entities involved in human rights violations or other types of bribery and corruption in foreign countries. If you're reading Bill Browder's book, I think Red Notice, and kind of the ins and outs of how that legislation was passed, it is important to remember that it was passed by the Congress against the wishes of the Obama administration, because the point is they were hoping to keep the door open to Russia for negotiation purposes. Like, yes, you're doing all of this corruption, but we want to have 
some leeway here. Whereas the Congress, because it's passed by them, and it was passed overwhelmingly, like one of the few people who objected to it, I think was Senator Kerry, you know, because he wanted to become Secretary of State, and he was told to try to kill this, and he couldn't, at least according to the book. I think that was the point it was trying to make. So to me, it seems very important that the Congress has to legislate this. Otherwise, whether it's a Republican or Democrat administration, there's going to be a temptation from the White House that you want to have as much room for maneuver as possible. And something like the Magnitsky Act reduces that. But if we're saying this is important, taking away that temptation is important. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it's certainly beneficial to have this system of checks and balances that we have to temper the executive desires of freedom and maneuvering with desires essentially for global justice and for democracy to spread. I mean, I think that unfortunately, from what we've seen so far, there hasn't been a lot of diplomatic progress with Russia. And I wonder if part of this is because their access to capital taken through corruption has been such that they're able, more able to exert influence on us than we necessarily are on them. And maybe this recognition would make the combating of corruption and kleptocracy a higher priority in really our, our diplomatic strategy. And would you say the Magnitsky Act is kind of a standard for dealing with kleptocracy through legislation, or is it an example lessons that can be drawn from it? You know, I don't know about whether or not that's the standard. I think, you know, the more standard way of dealing with kleptocracy through legislation would be through the Bank Secrecy Act. So is there, you know, laundering of money in the U.S. by individuals abroad that allows, if there is, then that money can be confiscated. The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, if U.S. corporations are involved in corrupt activities or if some kind of corrupt dealings take place on U.S. soil, even between foreign entities, then that money can be confiscated as well through judicial action. And I guess the Patriot Act also would be another one, even though the focus of it is more on the financing of terrorism. So all those tools typically are the main tools that are used at least from the judicial standpoint, then of course there are sanctions that are these kind of targeted economic measures. And there's also shell companies. Mm -hmm. So are you, I don't know if you use the phrase shell company, but basically these anonymous corporations that are pretty easy to create. In fact, I believe there was a study some a few years ago that showed yeah. how easy it was to create. There would be some places in the United States who wouldn't incorporate it, but if you kept calling, you'd be able to find some lawyer or someone who would help you create this anonymous shell company without the proper paperwork. And you mentioned like beneficial owners. So for our listeners, those are the people who actually own it, right? They, mm -hmm. It's their money, but their name isn't necessarily on the paperwork. So a good example of that would be the vice president of Equatorial Guinea actually had a lot of money in the U.S. He didn't actually open up any bank accounts in his name. The bank accounts were opened with these anonymous corporations, and the only names that were on the bank accounts were those of his attorneys who were working for him trying to uh, 
you know, keep anybody from knowing that money was actually his because there are a number of anti-money laundering laws in the U.S. that encourage banks, financial institutions to find out who the actual owner is of the money that's deposited. And if it happens that a bank becomes what's called a prime money laundering concern, in, in other words, it's laundering more money than should be feasible given maybe just a, a standard level of laundering money, then those banks will often be shut down or just go out of business because of uh, reputational damage. A quite famous one is Riggs Bank, which took in a lot of embassy money here in D.C. and then it shut down and all the embassies were kind of in a crisis of trying to figure out where they could actually do banking as a result of what happened there. And there's also, in my understanding, is there's an issue where even if you have maybe the beneficial owner and you kind of know that this kleptocrat or this person owns it, then you might also have like two or three or four other people who also own it. And so money is coming and going and it's hard to kind of keep track of what money is legit, what money is not legit. Is that also an issue? Definitely. I mean, one of, you know, one thing that can be done with these shell corporations or anonymous corporations is they can be layered. So you can have one corporation owning another corporation owning another corporation. So this further distances the money from where the illegal activity took place. And I think there are really kind of three stages in this money laundering process. One is placement, so kind of getting the money out of wherever it was gotten into a new financial system. Uh, the other is layering, which is kind of obfuscating the money. And kind of the final step is legitimization which is putting that money in something that looks truly legitimate and could even make the kleptocrat or the corrupt person look like they have legitimate business dealings in um, the country where they've deposited their money. Yeah, so they're stealing money, putting it into American, British, and other Western bank accounts, and uh, then we're having to give them aid sometimes or forgiving debts that they were stealing. Yeah. So, I mean, this is certainly disturbing, I think, to the average taxpayer that quite a bit of our money goes to foreign countries in the form of aid for, for good reasons. As of October 2017, there is a devastating famine in Africa that's taking place. And, and certainly money needs to go into there. But at the same time, those very same countries in which this famine is taking place are extremely corrupt and are even violent kleptocracies actually funding wars and, and, and taking on wars to enrich themselves, which is, is certainly startling. So it's definitely a priority that when we are looking at giving aid, there should probably be quite a few strings attached in terms of seeing good governance, seeing those assets managed well, stewarded well. One of the things I wanted to touch upon, talking about America's role in this, you had mentioned that 
there are several states that make it easy for creating these shell companies that then enable the kleptocracy machine to launder the money so that the kleptocrats can use the money later on. And there's a few questions I wanted to touch upon, but one was which states? I mean, I think it's important to probably name some of them because a lot of times Americans think about this issue and they think, well, it's just the Cayman Islands or some other island. It's not necessarily us when actually it is the United States is the offshore company or the offshore you know, location for yeah. most countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's been surprising that some of the researchers have found that a substantial fraction of these anonymous companies have come out of Delaware, which is certainly the largest incorporator period in the U.S. But there are other states that seem to be attractive to people who want to keep their money hidden from anybody's view. One would be Nevada, another would be Wyoming, and I believe perhaps Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, is another. So, you know, I think one of the things we could improve on as as a country is making sure that when law enforcement has a concern about money laundering by potential kleptocracies, that we're able to get to the bottom very quickly in terms of identifying who the owners are of these corporations that are the vehicles by which money is invested in our financial system. So you were saying earlier, before we started recording, that there are several reasons why the public is not aware of corruption or of kleptocracy. And would you like to list some of those different reasons? Yeah. I think one of the reasons the public isn't entirely aware of kleptocracy and corruption is because there are a number of very technical ways in which money can be extracted and laundered, a number of complicated schemes that are used to get money from one place to another. As I've mentioned in this podcast, there are things like anonymous corporations, beneficial ownership, and it's very easy to get bogged down in all those details and kind of lose the force for the trees. So I think one of the challenges for people who are working in this space, especially in policy advocacy, is to make the case to the American public as to you know why they should really care. I don't think there's been enough emphasis on that. One of the things we talked about was tax money going towards aid and that money getting siphoned off. Well, I mean, there's something that a lot of people could see, but you know, what about the opioid epidemic? There's certainly illegal money there that could be going straight back to a kleptocracy. Certainly the North Koreans are involved and the drug trade, and there's no reason to think that any number of countries in Latin America and Africa also are not benefiting in some way from the drug trade. So there's there's a convergence of some of these criminal activities that ultimately ends up benefiting the kleptocrats. But I think, you know, if you look at North Korea, well, we have a real crisis right now with North Korea and their increase in nuclear arms. And so they're a kleptocracy, they're a totalitarian regime. As they're able, as these kleptocrats are able to bring their money into the U.S., they're able to keep democracy away from their borders. And, you know, when democracy is kept away from a country's borders, it's usually 
not in the interest of the United States to the point that it can be critical in terms of a threat to our very existence. Well, Ted, thank you so much for coming into the office today to talk about kleptocracy. And there's plenty more that we could talk about, but this should give our listeners a lot to think about. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to write for us more because this, I'm sure, will be a continuing, developing story. I look forward to doing some writing in the future. Thank you so much for having me here, Mark. I appreciate it.